Welcome to episode number 20 of Strengthening the Brethren podcast. I'm your host, Michael Larson. Today I'm going to share the second installment in the series on Calvinism by Pastor Terry McGovern. Before I do that, I'd like to tell you about Patriot Mobile. They are not a sponsor of this podcast. I am a customer of theirs, and I am very well pleased with them. They are the only Christian conservative phone carrier whose mission is to defend our God-given constitutional rights and freedoms, Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom and freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now you can partner with a phone carrier that shares your values. Go over to PatriotMobile.com or call 972-PATRIOT and let them know that Michael Larson referred you. You'll need to give them my phone number, which you can find in the show notes. Patriot Mobile also has a membership where you can obtain free prescription medication. Learn more about them at patreonmobile.com. Now, on with the second message on Calvinism. Enjoy. Amen. Thank you very much. All right. Before we get into the service, we have a baby dedication this evening. Always enjoy those. And this one especially. This is for Noah Spurgeon Jordan. So if they would come on up here. Oh, they're right there. I'm looking all over you guys. You're right, in the, right up front here. And Casey Korn, also his birthday's today. Where's he at? Is he in here? Oh, you're ushering? How old are you right now? You're old. Just so you know, you're old. That's right. 40 years old he is as of today. And you have less hair today than you did yesterday. I thought I'd just remind you of that right now, brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, all right, but uh, Rachel and Josiah wanted to bring Noah up and do a dedication of him, and and he is certainly such a joy. I enjoy him so much, and uh, we're excited for them. Excited for Noah. Yeah, I want to come over there. If you tickle his feet, he smiles really, really big. And uh, I want to read from Deuteronomy chapter six here first. <clears throat> In verse 4 it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. We do baby dedications. We certainly don't baptize babies, as is common with them. We're not Protestant, but in Protestant churches and whatnot, the idea of baptizing an infant, which is nowhere in Scripture, absolutely nowhere in the Bible do you see that. That doctrine did not exist, not even until the 3rd, 4th century when it became prominent at the time under Constantine, and the false doctrine of time baptism, water baptism into salvation and, and whatnot. And break down, well, I'm not going to get into that. It's a whole other lesson. Um, it is nowhere in Scripture. But the idea of dedicating your child to the Lord certainly is. Uh, uh, of wanting your child, if you bring your child before the Lord and say, Lord, we want you to use our child. We want his life to be all about you. And in a sense, I remember Pastor Roche used to say this a lot, and he certainly was right. It's more of a dedication of the parents than, of course, it is of the child. It's a dedication of the parents coming into Deuteronomy chapter 6, and in that what they're going to teach him, 
most above all in the context of that section is this, that Spurgeon needs to love God. And he's going to see that in mom and dad. He's even listening to me right now. Yes, you are. I see you. Yes. But to teach your children to love God. And if they love God, just like Christ, and it will happen, that obedience will happen. You teach them obedience without a love for God, they're going to grind it out their whole life. And very possibly they rebel when they get older. The motive for obedience is so important, and it should be based on what they see above all else in life, what should be preeminent. The goal of life is God. And so as you dedicate Spurgeon today, the the goal is for you to teach him that life is all about God and that his love would be set on him. And before we pray, of course, we have our our gifts for for Spurgeon. Hey, little buddy. Hey, hi. Let's go ahead and pray. I'll come over here with them. I'm going to grab a mic. That's all right. I got a blue one here. Is that one all right? All right. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you. And Lord, we do thank you for Noah. Lord, we thank you for giving him to us. And Lord, we do pray for uh, Rachel and Josiah as they raise him. Lord, I pray that he would see their love for God. And Lord, that you would work on his heart. And, Lord, that he would have a love for you. Lord, we certainly do pray that uh, for his salvation, Lord. Lord, we pray if that understanding comes and that age of accountability hits, that he would place his faith in Christ. And, Lord, please give them the wisdom in raising him. And, Lord, may we as a church be a help. Lord, help me to pastor him effectively as well. Lord, that he would love you and serve you. So, Lord, that is our prayer. That for Noah Spurgeon, that you be with the parents and bless them. And honor them, give them wisdom and grace. And Lord, we pray that Noah would always love you and serve you and serve you because he loves you. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, buddy. Yes. <laughs> Just listening. Yes. Sweet. <clears throat> All right. Amen. Romans. Let's start off with Romans chapter 2 here this evening. Part of my notes I wanted. Well, that is, oh well, that's fine. We did the overview um, a couple of weeks ago before I had left uh, for Korea on Calvinism. And I talked about the rise of it, how when I was in New Guinea and, and uh, there was a solid church there in Cairns, Australia by an American missionary. And when we were there, he was switching it over to Calvinism and and then beginning to see, realize at that point, back going back to, that would be 2005. And then I began to realize, wow, how influential and the inroads it was making in many of our churches. Having two pastor friends of mine that were very close, um, that I'm still close with to, to, to this day, their son-in-laws embracing Calvinism. And boy, when you're a dad, and of course you give your daughter off to marry, you're always concerned. I mean, you are transferring your authority there, and, and you need to be praying for your son-in-law. They will stay right with God. And uh, but two, two of them had completely, they don't know each other at all, but it was at the exact, within months of each other, getting the phone calls of how their, uh, their son-in-laws had made a change, and they began to embrace Calvinism. And again, you can almost see how it came about, how right around 2000, late 90s, 2000, how it was sort of almost ripe for that to take place. We were coming out of a time in the 1980s within independent fundamental Baptist churches where 
many were recognizing in the churches, not all churches, but just some of them, especially among the prominent, the ones that were of influence at the time, that something just wasn't quite right. We had the one, two, three prayer, prayer taking place, and churches claiming thousands saved with, you know, a church rise and membership of three and, 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 uh, and things like that. We had a, we had a, and I'm not being mean with this. Please understand, this is many, how many were taught. Understand, this is how it was taught. This is how it was given, how it was being passed down. For the most part, in, in many of the churches, not all of them, there are a lot of them that were staying very faithful and, and, and very true to the Word of God. Um, but there was a shallowness when it came to the preaching. There was, as you heard me mention many times, you knew what every single service was going to be. It was just going to be look a little bit different. Uh, um, Sunday morning, and many of them, was simply going to be a salvation message every single Sunday morning in many of them. Not all, but many of them. Just put in a different way. Even though that it's for the church, it didn't matter. It was a gospel message. That was a prime time to feed people, but it wasn't being done. I think the gospel should be in all messages. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, you hear me do that in every single one of my messages. The gospel is going to be presented. Um, but to have that prime opportunity where that's all that is every Sunday morning. And then after that, it was always a series of topical messages. With many of those following a pattern that was given by leadership within our nation at the time, within independent Baptist churches, which would be a series of illustrations about the preacher and his life. Um, and nothing real of Scripture, just usually a verse, a springboard, topical message, a good principle, a good thought. Sometimes things that could even be a help. But there was such a shallowness when it came to the Word of God, and there wasn't, so the, the drawing wasn't there. The, 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 the foundation, the, what was needed to have that knowledge of God, a knowledge of truth, and allowing truth to direct lives and truth to change lives. Instead of just, it's what our church does. And well, as we saw, as the culture changed, people changed. I mean, standards went out the door because people did not know why they believed what they did. They just did it because the church did it. Well, around that same time, you had, you had some key men in the nation that had, a, had an influence, whether it was through radio or whatever, that nonetheless were strong biblical teachers. That when you listen to them, you're like, wow, they're really teaching the Word of God. But there was a danger with some of them, and that was Calvinism. And so it began to all of a sudden appeal to a young generation of pastors coming out of Bible college and seminary. It appeals to pride. It does. And so all of a sudden you had this idea of Calvinism coming in of almost an elite feeling. that Almost like Gnosticism in the first century. That you know something here. And it began to spread. And so we looked at it uh, that a couple of weeks ago. And for the most part, there's five basic things to Calvinism. There's actually much more than five, but it's, it's looked at as the tulip, as five primary teachings of Calvinism. And if you break down any one of those, it loses its force. Now, Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read a couple of verses here. This is a proof text for how they view total depravity. Romans chapter 2, verse 10. Or excuse me, Romans chapter 3. I keep saying chapter 2. It is Romans chapter 3. It's not Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Let's go ahead and pray.
Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly love you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask your blessing upon this tonight. Please help me to stay true to your word. I pray the teaching would be clear. Please give understanding in our hearts. Strengthen us, Lord, uh, that we can know why we believe what we believe according to your word. Help us to be grounded and established, Lord. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And again, this is one of the things each week of this series, you've got a purpose to listen. This will strengthen you. This will help you. And, and you might be able to be a help to somebody else. Um, I remember when we did this series the last time, actually the, the person was not here. Um, I'm not going to give their name out. We, we would know who they were, but I, I don't have their permission to give their name out, so I'm not going to. Um, but uh, somebody in the church had given them the, the copies of the messages on the series of Calvinism because they were getting ready to embrace it. They, they were all over. They thought this was it. And then we had just finished it. They gave them the series. And this person, they're no longer in the church. But before they left, that person came to me and said, listen, there's one thing I want to thank you for. Years ago, you did the series on Calvinism. And that pulled me right out of that. You don't know how the Lord can use this for you to be a help to somebody else. All right. It can be it can it can grab people. Um, so anyhow, we're going to look at the first point of the tulip tonight, and that is referred to as the total depravity of man. This tenet of Calvinism is, is certainly of great importance. If this one is not true, which none of them are, but if this one isn't true, understand this: the rest of the tulip falls apart. Because if this one isn't true, it makes unconditional election impossible. It also makes um, irresistible grace impossible if this one falls apart. And you're going to see how all these are interlinked. You, you have some who claim to be four-point Calvinists. Well, they, they don't like the limited atonement. I'll talk about it when you get there. But you can't be an honest, honest Calvinist. If you're going to follow Calvinism, you have to be a five-point Calvinist. It's just convenient to say you don't believe in the, in the fourth one because of how horrible it actually is. All right? Um, so, but anyhow, when it comes to this tenet of it, I, I have heard this, the, the T of the tulip and P, perseverance of the saint. I've heard those who deny Calvinism say they can agree with total depravity and with perseverance of the saints. No, you can't. There's nothing scriptural about either of them. And you, I remember one time that got me in a little bit of trouble with a pastor who is actually very smart, is is. His intellect is far above mine. He's, he's written several books. And if you remember last time, I referred to on my blog where I had, I had a, a total fellowship. Fellowship? Is that a word? That's a new word now, isn't it? I can hear Mitch's laugh, so that's a brand new word right there. I had like seven followers, whatever. Remember, then it exploded because I did that one post on Calvinism. And it just went from there. And so... Because of all of the questions that were coming in, in the comments, I went to another pastor, um, and, and this, this man who I knew was, you know, somebody I considered very brilliant when he would write and was very good at apologetics, and said, listen, I could use your help if you would come over. I can't respond to all this, and you're a much better arguer, arguer than I am, and I enjoy arguing. And, but what I didn't realize is we ended up having to communicate behind the scenes because he sort of agreed with perseverance of the saints. And so I'm all of a sudden reading his comments. I'm writing back. I said, brother, you don't understand it. I said, you better get in there and see what Calvinists actually believe about perseverance of the saints. We, there's no way you could agree with it. And we'll see that when we get to the P. But this is also one that some think, well, I can believe in the total depravity of man. But not the way Calvinists teach it. And you're going to see that today. 
I hope to point out how the Calvinist view of man's depravity is in direct opposition to Scripture. So first, let's get into the definition of the total depravity of man. First off, I would agree, man is totally deprived. With the statement itself, I have no problems with. It's how they define it that we get into trouble. Man's heart is wicked. He, he does not have to be taught wickedness. You don't have to teach your child how to steal, how to lie, any of that. It's in his nature. We have a wicked, deprived heart. He will naturally seek out wick, wickedness of his own volition. We see this in places like Romans chapter 3 we just read, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, how the heart is desperately wicked. Calvinists and non-Calvinists agree on this. However, their definition under the T of the tulip goes much, much further than that, and I'm going to read to you their definition of it. This first one is taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're not familiar with that, that was was produced around 1640-ish. It's still a standard used by Calvinists today, this document. It was produced in England. It was primarily at the time establishing the the Reformation, the doctrine of Calvinism, if you will, uh, for the Church of England. The Presbyterians also adapted it very quickly. Scotland got involved with it. And then another group in England called Particular Baptists. Particular Baptists, they were called particular because they held to Reformed theology. They were your Calvinists. Okay, so they also uh, 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 adapted it, and theirs became known by a different name, um, the Second Confession of London. I can't quite—I should have wrote it down. I can't quite remember the name of that. But they had a different name for their confession. They had to adopt it a little because they're pulling from a document that also would subscribe to things that how God's grace is administered through baptism and the Lord's Supper. So anyhow, let me read the definition that Calvinists hold to this day. Those that are even following it today. Here is their definition from their their document. Our first parents became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body, wholly inclined to all evil. Man Man by his fall into a state hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good. As we're going to see, that's where they're going off course. Accompanying, uh, let me read that in context again. Hath wholly lost all ability of his will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Being altogether averse from that good and dead to sin is not by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Let's look at another source document that is still used to this day from the Canon of Dort. This is interesting. This goes into the Netherlands. Netherlands literally almost went into a civil war over the doctrine of Calvinism. So what was preventing that was actually going to be this writing. And they also defined it, accepting for their churches, their Dutch churches, the doctrine of Calvinism. Here's how they defined total depravity. Therefore, all men without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, are neither able nor willing to return to God, nor to dispose themselves to reformation. That statement, if you didn't recognize it, is actually full of biblical error. And we're going to cover that. That statement is not found anything close to it in the Bible. 
nor is there any Bible principle to support it. To sum it up, Calvinism's definition of total depravity means man is unable to repent and trust in Christ because of his fallen nature. Think about that. It is teaching that man is totally not able to turn to Christ. It is impossible because of his nature. When a Calvinist says they believe in total depravity, what he really means is this, total inability. And that is the word that is used in the Westminster Confession, inability. They believe in total inability. You will hear some of them, which this is not in, in, by the way, it's not in the Westminster. This is just when I have listened to and read. I've read their books. I've, I've listened to them preach on it over and over uh, many times. They will use an illustration like this under total depravity. They will use a dead man in a casket and asking you, can, can he respond? I can preach to him all day. I can preach to him all day, but he cannot respond. He must be given life before he can respond. Their problem is this. They're looking at death from a human secular standpoint and not a spiritual standpoint. They are looking at death as if it's nothingness. Death is not nothingness. They're simply talking about an empty body. I got news for you. If you're talking to the soul that's separated from that body, it can respond. This also is from the Westminster Confession, chapter 9. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Now, what does all this mean? Let's see how they, where, the, where the enormous danger of this comes in. Since Calvinists believe that man is unable, does not have the ability to repent and come to faith in Christ because he is so deprived, they teach that regeneration precedes faith. In other words, don't miss this. Total depravity means they believe and they teach strongly. You must be born again well before you're ever saved. They believe that for those that God has elected to salvation, because they're so totally deprived, they have an inability to seek God. And for their ability to seek God, to come after God, they have to be born again so that in the future they will seek God. And there's a debate between them as to when that new birth occurs. The majority concur that they believe it happens sometime right after birth. And some argue, no, it can happen later. Some try to argue because you can see what I'm going to point out, the obvious errors of that in Scripture. Some try and match it up right before faith happens. But then they're already seeking God. That argument falls apart immediately. So they teach that when the Bible speaks of being born again, that that happens well before a person is actually converted. But of course, as we're going to see, born again is conversion. That's what it is. But they have to teach that because of their definition of totally deprived, that God has to do a work in their heart so they would have the ability to seek God. That if God doesn't regenerate them first, they will never seek God. That's the essence of of that doctrine. 
I remember back in 2000, I was on debutation at the time, and I heard about this book, I think shortly before I left for debutation, it was Rising in Popularity, a book written by a man named John Piper. It was called Desiring God. Well, around 2000, 2001-ish, the book was extremely popular. I had no idea at the time that it dealt with Calvinism. I think it was kind of, I think it was a very subtle approach at it, but I didn't know that at the time. We were at some medical training, getting ready to go to New Guinea, and I heard a couple more people there talking about it, so I ordered it. I said, I'm going to read this book. And I got it. I think it was the very first chapter. Somewhere in the beginning, it might have been the first couple of chapters, but I'm almost positive it was the very first chapter. It's been, again, since 2001, ish when I read it, so we're talking 20 years ago. And I didn't need to read any more of it. I knew right there, when I read that, Desiring God... And I got through the first chapter to, this is a book teaching Calvinism without calling it Calvinism. Because he was dealing with this right here. About the need of God to regenerate you so that you could seek after God. And he was tying it in with some other points that were pretty, uh, some other points that were pretty good. But I'm like, no, no, this is a subtle attempt at Calvinism. And if you know John Piper, he certainly is a Calvinist. He also, which is church, but I remember I was following that church vote when I was in New Guinea. He actually put before us, because when you're associated with this, many times Presbyterians come along. If you don't know, the Presbyterian faith is also built on Calvinism. And so he had a lot of Presbyterians coming to his church. He actually put before a church vote that those who were baptized as infants could become members of his church. I don't know if you know, you can look it up. I followed up up through the church vote. Now, they would not be allowed to hold any position of leadership or teach in the church, but that they could become members. He felt bad for them because he had several of them attending, but they could not join because they were never scripturally baptized. Well, as a pastor, he was willing to make an exception to that. Of those, instead of teaching them, no, listen, you're wrong. You need to be scripturally baptized. No, let's make an exception and allow them to be members of the church. Now, shockingly, which I was... I was glad for, the church voted it down. The church said, no, they need to be scripturally baptized. So it never became a part of his church. So, again, they teach that regeneration precedes faith. The common thinking is that all those who God has elected at some point become regenerated, born again, so they can be able to hear and understand the gospel and put their faith in Christ. That unless they're regenerated, that's not a possibility. Um, again, the, the scriptures teach this nowhere, nowhere in the Bible. This teaching is a result of their false definition of depravity because how they defined it, they made man it impossible for man to ever seek God. And I'm going to cover their proof text like Romans chapter 2 before I finish today. R.C. Sproul, who just recently died, he was on the radio here in Anchorage, very influential Calvinist. And in other areas, the guy could argue some points for the faith that were just tremendous. Uh, But this is what he said on this subject. The Reformed view of predestination teaches that before a person can choose Christ, he must be born again. One does not believe, then become reborn. Again, they believe you have to be regenerated. That comes before faith, before conversion. It's not at the same time. Usually sometime well before conversion, because that's what causes you to seek God. So the question is then, are they right? Does regeneration precede faith? We know from Scripture, all who place their faith on Christ shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Um, Acts 16, 31, we just looked at. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Romans 1.16 we just looked at. How the belief in the gospel is salvation. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Um, I think we all would agree until one repents and places their, <clears throat> their faith in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are lost, undone, and on their way to hell. That's true. This would mean, then, if Calvinism is true, with their definition of total depravity, that there are those who have been regenerated right now, but are still lost. Think about that. Still lost. Regenerated, but lost. That is scripturally impossible. The Bible clearly teaches... The moment a person places their faith in Christ, they are saved, become a child of God, regenerated. It's all in a single moment in time when repentance and faith take place. Faith precedes regeneration. It's not the other way around. Let's look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's look how we are begotten, how the new birth takes place. Paul, referring to the salvation of those at the church at Corinth, says this in verse 15. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, and yet have not many fathers in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through what? The gospel. The gospel. They had to hear the gospel first to believe in that before they could be begotten, before regeneration could take place. First Peter chapter one. Look over in First Peter chapter one. Faith precedes regeneration. When that faith a person has comes to Christ in repentance, regeneration then takes place. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Let me read, let me, well, let's go on. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass uh, withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by what? The gospel is preached unto you. What led the regeneration here? It's not complex. The word of God which leads to regeneration which was preached to them. So again, you have the case here where faith preceded regeneration. Once they heard the word of God, not something God did when they were a baby. No, that's, that's not it. It's upon hearing the gospel, the hearing of the word of God, which matches verses like Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Or excuse me, Romans 10, 17, not Romans 1, 17. Look at Titus 3, 5. We see it again. At the moment of salvation, regeneration taking place. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There is not a single verse in scripture that puts regeneration before faith. 
they have to do that because of their definition of man's depravity. Man is totally deprived, but that doesn't mean he's totally enabled. There's a difference. <clears throat> you, I'm not going to turn there for time's sake today. Time's getting away from me a little bit. First John chapter 5 also gets into uh, uh, the new birth and how it comes. Uh, uh, you have faith in Christ, thus being born again. Therefore, the new birth does not take place by an act of God apart from a person understanding of faith in the gospel. It is a result of that choice. Regeneration is a result of the choice of one hearing the gospel and making the decision to place his faith in Christ. That's when regeneration occurs throughout the, throughout the word of God. And of course, the ultimate example of this is John chapter 3. Let's turn there. Remember what they teach. This right here, they need to remove from the Bible uh, based on their definition of man's depravity. That man, without being regenerated, will not ever, ever seek God. That is the teaching. They don't deny it. They don't try and hide it. That's what it is. That it's not possible. His heart is so deprived that he will never seek God. And I'll get to Romans chapter 2, the proof text, and we're going to look at that in context as to the meaning of it. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles uh, that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus not understanding what Christ was saying. Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, let me cover another false doctrine right now because I have a Thompson chain and many of you have a Thompson chain Bible. There's an error in your Thompson chain reference notes right here. All right? And that, be, that comes from a a, 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 what do you call it, a presupposition about baptism and salvation where they put it in here right now. Christ defines what he meant, born of water, in verse 6. He makes it clear. He's referring to physical birth. Because a baby in the womb is in what? Water. That's what he's in. He defines it in verse 6 to make it clear. That is not referring to baptism in any way. All right, because if you have a Thompson chain, if you look over at the side where it talks born of water, you have a chain reference for what? Baptism. That is not a verse on baptism. So anyhow, here's Jesus explaining to him the new birth. Marvel not that I say unto thee. Who's he speaking to? Thank you. Wow. Oh. He's speaking to Nicodemus. This is what he tells him. What does he say in verse 7? Ye must be what? Born again. Is Nicodemus in context seeking God? But he's not born again. 
know what that does? It settles the issue. It's a false doctrine. And remember, they've got to have the T. You can't remove it. If you remove it, they're too connected. If this T isn't true, they will lose the teaching of unconditional election and irresistible grace. It will fall apart. Remember, we dealt with Calvin, the man who wrote the Institutes, the basis for this, who, who his study time was not so much of the Word of God. I, I agree the man was brilliant. He was a lawyer. Let's not forget that. He was a lawyer. The Institutes were finished, for the most part, a year after, quote, conversion. Think about that. By his own admission, the person that he followed and loved was one of the church fathers who has been dead for many years. We've got to go back to around the 5th, 6th century, was Augustine. What he was expounding upon was Augustine's writing. By the way, as a side note, one thing they always like to throw up to us, uh, us as we argue as Baptists is Spurgeon. Because Spurgeon was a Calvinist. And I enjoy reading Spurgeon, tremendous man of God. Although in his writings, I will say this, you will see him over and over rejecting the idea that one must be regenerated, that regeneration precedes faith. He did not hold to that. Now the consequences of this doctrine. The belief is that man is completely not capable of understanding the gospel and coming to Christ without God first performing the miracle of regeneration in their life so that they then can hear the gospel and be saved. That anyone who does not, uh, that anyone who, for whom God does not perform this miracle does not have the ability and it is not possible for them to come to Christ. Only those who God has elected will God perform this miracle of regeneration for so that they can be saved. This means then, by simple deductive reasoning, that all the non-elect do not have the ability to be saved. It is completely impossible because they are totally deprived and can never seek God. And they will never, ever, ever, ever have the possibility unless God chooses to do the miracle of regeneration so that they then can seek God. Are you following me? Think what that is saying about God. How horrible is that? He would be condemning men who never, ever, ever had the remotest possibility at salvation if this is true. They always like to still claim, it's like they talk out of two sides of their mouth, that no, they have the choice, just in their will they reject. No, according to your teaching, they don't have the ability, the ability at all to seek God. It is saying God could save all men, but deliberately withhold salvation from billions. Some, in responding to this charge, it almost makes your blood boil. The response at times is, is, is frightening. In answering this, many Calvinists claim God does this out of glory for his justification. Are you kidding me? 
in the Westminster Confession, there is this statement. To ordain then to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to praise of his glorious justice. Listen to me. The idea, when you look at the definition of how total depravity is fine, which puts man in a complete inability to seek God. Complete. Never could happen. This goes against who God is. Because not only is God holy, not only is God just, but he is love. And we know from Scripture that God has chosen to love the whole world. For God so loved the world. Not just the elect. Remember, I showed you that last week in Romans chapter 5, because they will say that's just the elect. I think go to our YouTube page, there's already a Calvinist from the very first message, write it on there, how yes, it's just the elect. Because I referred to John 3.16. No, it isn't. That's proven by, remember what we went through in Romans chapter 5, where you can prove without a shadow of a doubt that salvation is for all men. All. God's love is perfect. And third definition of total depravity and the consequences of it challenges who God is. The teaching to try and say, God does not love everyone, nor does he have mercy for everyone. Yet the Bible, look at, look at it's Romans chapter 11, I've got to make sure of this. I believe it's verse 32. I needed to verify this. And I, I think I... Let me see if that's the verse I want. Yes. I believe it even contradicts this verse. And we will get into Romans 9, 10, and 11. These are some key chapters for, for Calvinism, but that's later on. Um, Romans chapter 11, verse 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon who? Upon all. God's mercy is for all men. All right, let's get more into the error of this, of their definition of total depravity. Now, they have proof texts. For time's sake, I don't have time to go into them tonight, but you have proof texts that are used when you read the writings and listen to them teach and preach on it, verses like Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 with what was going on in Noah's day, where man's heart was only evil continually, uh, every imagination of his heart. All that's true, and that does speak to man's total depravity. Uh, Romans chapter 3. Um, like we just read here, verses 10, we read 10, 11, 12. You go down through, down through verse, really number 18 on there. Another key one, which I'm going to address here in a minute. Look at John chapter 1 and 13. I'm giving you their proof text right now. If you're to sit down with them, I'm giving you all the verses that they're going to use to try and convince you of this doctrine. About in Romans 2 talks about uh, no, no man seeketh God. There's none good, no, not one. Uh, look at John chapter 1 here. Let me get there myself. <clears throat> Verse 13. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will, 
of flesh, nor the will of men, but of God. Another proof text they use to prove regeneration precedes faith. And we're, I'm going to address those in just, in just a minute. Um, their strongest, let's go back to Romans, is Romans chapter 3. The Bible says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. This section here in the book of Romans is, again, one of their strongest proof texts on how they define total depravity of man. So let's look at this, because we need to address these verses. First, these verses do not say what Calvinists say it says. None of these verses teach that man does not have the ability to choose God or seek God. The context is even based on man not choosing to seek after God. Man does not seek God, not because of an inability, but because of his unwillingness. Look at Psalm chapter 10. You want to know why man doesn't seek God? It has nothing to do with inability because of a secular definition of dead. Look at, again, look at Psalm chapter 10. Verse number 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. It does not say that the wicked, through their inability, do not seek God. It's through man's choice and his pride that man makes that choice. I will not seek God. That is not because of an inability. It's because of his choice. Romans 2, contextually speaking, is showing the universal sin of all man, whether Jew or Gentile. That's the context of it. The good is as compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Bible, we do see good men. I mean, think of Acts chapter 10 when it referred to Cornelius. Did it not call him a good man? So context is important. It's comparing with who we are next to God, and then that, there is none good. Even Jesus referred to the good works of some lost men. The point is, there is none good enough for heaven, because every single man is a sinner, has a fallen nature. It never says it's an inability. Now, another strong text is the one in John chapter 1. Let's go back to John chapter 1. Let's address that one. This is a verse that Calvinists love to claim as a proof. Man cannot receive Christ of his own will. He has to be elected to salvation. And they tie it in with... Oh, I'm in Matthew 1, so let me get over to John. Again, we read it once, but we need to read it again. I'll read it in context of verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So they try and take this verse to mean uh, from man's inability 
that it is simply uh, 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 the work of, they'll tie in the regeneration before faith, that God has to do this so that they can, can seek after God to be saved. In context here, verse 13 is giving the source of the new birth, not the reason why men receive Christ. That's a huge difference. The source of the new birth is God. There's no question about that. In other words, the verse is teaching in context the new birth is not of blood. It's not physical regeneration. It's not natural descent or inheritance. It's not because you're a Jew or because you're a Gentile. It's not of the will of the flesh. The source of the new birth is not reformation or self-effort. It's not the good works you do. It's not how many leaves you turn over. It's not of the will of man. It is not, uh, it's, it's not comes from your relatives, from preachers, from priests. It is of God. The new birth is God's work. And man's part from verse 12 is what? Look at verse 12. What was man's part in that? But as many as received him. This is dealing with verse 13, the source of the new birth. It's not by our efforts. It is of God. I believe God's pleading shows this is not true. What is it? Let me look. I think it's in Acts 17. We're not quite there yet in our text. Let me see. Yeah, verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked it. But now, get this, God commandeth all men everywhere to what? Repent. By the way, we're going to see how this, this verse alone defeats irresistible grace. You can see how so many of these things are intertwined together. All right? But he's commanded all men. All men. This is God's pleading for men to turn to him for salvation. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God over and over pleading with all men to repent. Let me ask you a question. Why would God plead with men to repent who have no ability to repent? Does that make any sense? Of course it doesn't. Let me give you one last verse and we'll finish up here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If man has no ability of himself whatsoever to seek God. Again, Romans 2 never said inability. He dealt with man as a choice. And, I, and, and make no mistake about it, I do believe God's spirit on the heart of man, especially when he hears the gospel or he looks in creation, it's God's spirit that's working on the heart, saying there is a creator. That's not regeneration, though. That is God's spirit working with the will of man to try and get man to respond to the light that is given to him. And every man that does make the choice to respond to that light, God gives more light Every single time. So, think of the doctrine. I'm going to give you a verse right now that completely debunks their definition of total depravity. So, if man has a complete inability because of his, he's totally deprived, of that, in their definition, that's what that means, a complete inability to seek after God, why would these verses be true here? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom 
The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Here's a simple question. If man is totally deprived, then why does Satan need to blind anyone? He doesn't. Are you following? If that definition is true, you've got to remove these verses. These are verses that scripturally debunk their definition of total depravity. Is man totally deprived? We are. We agree with it at that level. But that's where it ends. How each of us define it and our perspective at what that means is very different. And the key difference is this. Inability. We still believe with man's deprived heart that he has the ability to choose God. And that God's Spirit will work on that heart. But that's not regeneration. To nudge him to say there is a creator. It's of man's pride that he chooses not to seek God according to the word of God. And every time you see regeneration in faith, faith precedes regeneration. It's never the other way around. Not one time in scripture is it the other way around. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Again, this was more of teaching tonight. Um, but perhaps you still have a need to pray. Maybe there's something going on in your life now and you need to come before the Lord and, and just talk with Him. You certainly can do that now. Maybe the Lord, there was something the Lord worked on your heart on um, tonight and uh, we want to give you a chance to respond. And let me ask this. I know we don't have any first-time visitors here or anything like that, but if you are here, say, Pastor, please pray for me. Um, I am not saved. I don't know that I'm going to heaven. Please, I need you to pray for me. Would you, would you just put your hand up for me where I can see that anybody here like that? All right, you can put your hands down. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I pray that you bless this invitation. Please work in hearts and lives, Lord. And uh, Lord, we love you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's turn to page 457. And if you need to come and pray, you come and pray. Thank you for listening to Strengthening the Brethren podcast. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. If you are listening via Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please give a five-star rating and review. Lastly, share with your friends so that they too can be encouraged and think upon the topics that come up on this podcast. If you have any questions, prayer requests, or anything else for me, you can contact me through my website at www.refreshedingodsword.com or you may email me at stbpodcastkjv at gmail.com. Have a blessed day.